Last week was very much of an introduction. It was very informal. I actually did something I hadn't done in a while. I just sat down in a chair and uh, let you do most of the talking. Uh, so tonight we're going to start to actually lay information down that we're going to take for the next few weeks and use. What I hope to do tonight in just kind of an overview is I'm just going to present some scriptures that deal with the subject of hell and see if we can talk about them, right? So I want this to really be you talking, I'm presenting, I'll be reading scriptures and you can stop me and talk about them and I'll give you a method of how to do that. So last week what I did is I gave a very spirited defense of why we were going to do a topic on hell which nobody really wants to talk about. I was specifically referring to the question that Tiffany had raised, why would we ever do this series? And it was such a spirited defense, she wasn't here to hear it. So in review, here were just some of the points I raised last week. And we went on to kind of talk about these two reasons from Scripture that I think it's very important that we tackle this subject. One is we are commanded to give a reason for the hope that we have and to anyone who asks. And second, to destroy those kinds of arguments and presuppositions that stand against God. Now, that's a very complicated thing to do, but I believe that there is some basis for why we take on such a difficult topic. I'd like to add a couple more, just two more. One is, I think that what we believe about hell says a lot about our beliefs about God, about scripture, and especially about the gospels. So I think that we can use this topic to actually, as some of you started to notice last week, dig into all the other ground that lies around it, because we really can't take on the topic without examining what we really believe. And I think you're going to see that throughout this series, it's really what we believe more than even what we read that's going to really be the thing we struggle with. If I could say it really plainly, some of us just can't believe certain things. It doesn't matter what we say or do here. Some of us are just going to get to the end and go, I just can't believe that. And I want you to be cognizant of that. I'm going to put up this other reason, and I want to say right now that I don't know that I necessarily agree with it. So if it strikes you as a little bit controversial, hold your comments for a moment. <laughs> the quote is this. It says, some have argued that in our great rush to apologize for hell or to do away with it altogether, we've only succeeded in making sure that a greater number of people will end up there. The reason I put that quote on the screen is because I want you to feel the tension for just a moment that sometimes it's really our belief that we need to check at the door if possible. Let me continue in that thought just a little bit further. Here's what I would ideally like to do. Ideally. Put your theological views aside and we'll just simply read and interpret the text together correctly and agree on it. Okay? That's what we're going to do. Ideally. <laughs> Now, I know you're chuckling because I did say ideally. I've actually read people who say, this is such a simple issue. If only we could check our theology, our beliefs about God, our biases about God, our presuppositions about God. If we could just check those at the door and just read the text, it would all be clear. But of course we know, especially in this group and many other places, that you can't do that. Even the way you read something. Even the way you interpret something comes heavily laced with your theology and your belief. You just can't separate them. Now, even though that's true that we really can't do what's ideally available, what ideally I'd like us to do, I want you to try to at least acknowledge this because it might help us a little bit. All right, so that's ideally. What are we going to realistically do? <laughs> realistically, we're going to present all the different views we are all going to argue about what we already believe, or we're going to argue for what we already believe. And hopefully, hopefully, even though we're still going to stick to what we already believe, if we do it together in this room and we wrestle with it enough, hopefully, the Holy Spirit is going to work in us because of our openness and because of our deliberation. One of the key ways that the Spirit speaks to the church is through deliberation. Isn't it odd that we don't deliberate very much as a church? And that's one of the reasons that we do this group. Because in the deliberation, I hope that the Spirit will speak. And we will all somehow be changed through the working of the Spirit. All right, So be open. I know that the ideal is hard to reach, if not impossible. But I want you to at least acknowledge that that's one of the problems we have, is that our beliefs are what is often speaking first. 
And so tonight, we're going to be actually just walking through the text, and I'm going to invite you to give me your reaction to the text. I've got so many scriptures, I don't think we're going to make it through tonight. All right? As I was thinking earlier, I was thinking, don't let the fact that we have 67 slides deter you tonight from speaking, all right? <laughs> we're not going to go through all of them. There's just no way. But I want you to at least react, and I'll show you how we're going to do that. Since last week was an introduction, tonight to set the stage and to give us useful ammunition for us to be able to deliberate over the next couple weeks, we are going to look at different views. We're going to look at a view, for example, the traditional view about what hell is, and I'll call it traditional even though that's controversial. Some would call it biblical, then the other people get all tweaked by that. Some would call it historical, and a whole another group gets tweaked. But let's just call it the view where you burn and torture forever. Is that easier? We're also going to look at another view, like the annihilationist view, that maybe your torment in hell is not forever. Maybe you're just annihilated. Maybe you're destroyed. We're going to look at the universalist view that says maybe Christ's salvation is so all-encompassing that everyone can be saved. And everybody will be saved. We have nothing to worry about. We're going to look at like mediums in between, but we need first just to have some common ground, and I think scripture should always be our common ground. So we're going to start just looking at verses. So here's some questions I want you to think about. Do the scriptures describe hell? I mean, is there even a hell described in scripture? That's one of the inquiries we have to have. Like, where would this hell be described? And it is probably important to know where it comes from and where it isn't stated, by the way. If it is described, what is it described like? Is it hot, cold, dark, distant? I mean, you guys gave some of your own views last week. Not many were in the hot camp. So to help us, by the way, in counting that, I've come up with a hot meter that we'll put on the side of the screen. And we'll use this meter to help us every time the description seems hot. It will tick away some of the, just to kind of keep track, because I know that I've talked to a lot of people about this. Now, I want to be clear right at the outset that just because the scriptures say something like hot, fire, burning, that doesn't solve the, the issue completely, because we still have to understand, well, why is that imagery used? Is it imagery? Is it meant to convey something else? We'll come back to that. But last week when we spoke, there just seemed to be a general preference for cold, dark, and distant. And we're going to look at that. I want you to look at those two. I just couldn't put too many meters on the screen. So we have the hot meter. You might want to ask yourself, who goes to hell? You might want to look and say, how long are people in hell? The duration issue. Just put these in your mind for a moment. Because what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read a scripture and then say, comments. I'd like you to push back on it a little bit and say, this is why I don't think that says what it says. Or this is why I don't really think that it's talking about hell. Or this is why I don't think that solves anything for us. I want you to do that tonight. Let's start with the Old Testament verses on hell. What verses in the Old Testament talk about hell? I've put them all on the screen. They're all there. Those are all the Old Testament verses on hell. In other words, none. So right away you can see we're making great progress because we've just thrown out the whole Old Testament. So we should be done in just a few minutes. The Old Testament is silent when it comes to our doctrine, and I mean a New Testament doctrine, of hell. Now, I do want to dispense with a couple things. You've probably heard in shorthand format that, well, in the Old Testament they had a concept of Sheol, and that's kind of roughly the equivalent of Hades. It's kind of like a land of the dead. It's not really hell. It's just where dead people go. And yes, that's shorthand. But I want to just say that the argument there and the issue there is way more complicated than that. There are so many Hebrew words that describe the grave, the pit, the abyss, the land of the dead. And you have to look at them because they mean different things in different contexts. But all that being said, the reason I'm not going to spend time here is because there really isn't a description of an afterworld place of torment. So while the concept of Sheol is difficult, it's not really going to be very relevant to help us. Now, I'm going to change the screen a little bit and say instead of Old Testament verses on hell, are there any Old Testament verses on judgment after death? Because you've also probably heard that in the Old Testament, well, they just didn't even have a concept of life after death. And that's not totally true. I would say it's mostly true. I'm going to just look at two verses. 
One of them is on Isaiah 66, verses 22 to 24. It says this, and he's talking about an eschatological future. As the new heavens and the new earth that I will make endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to the other and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. And they will be loathsome to all mankind. Now by itself, if you read the context of what Isaiah is talking about, he's talking about the people who are rising up against the Lord like physically as armies. And normally you could just dismiss this verse entirely, except you're going to see that Jesus actually picks up on it and uses this verse. So it becomes a little harder to just say, eh, that's not what he was talking about. Because apparently Jesus thinks that he was talking about this. So there's just one verse, just to kind of keep it in the back of our mind. Let me give you the other one. It's in Daniel. Daniel 12, verses 1 through 3. At that time, which is, he's talking in all of chapter 11 about the end time. Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not has happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Clearly, the point I want to show is this. There will be this awakening, this feeling, this, this allusion to resurrection. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. That's the closest we have in the Old Testament of a concept of judgment in the afterlife for good and for bad. And some would say that's the first time that you have this double judgment pronounced in the entire Old Testament and probably the last time. As I mentioned last week, in the intertestamentary times, the development of the theology about life and the resurrection and everlasting life began to develop even more in Jewish thought. And it was very well developed by the time Jesus begins to talk about it and teach about it. And we see that in some of the debates that go on between the Pharisees and other rabbinical schools. That's the Old Testament view. I just wanted to throw it up there. But I would say on balance, we can't use much of it. It's not going to help us much in our inquiry. Anyone want to just comment on these? Anything? Was the idea of like a heaven or life after death in like the Old Testament? Because like obviously Elijah was taken in a chariot somewhere and like Moses, we're not sure. Like if he died or not, whatever, he just was no more and things like that. So what kind of thoughts do they have about that? Not the punishment, but like heaven or was there no thoughts? Like the law was just for while you were living except for a chosen few? If you're just going to take what people would say the historical view of the Hebrews is that once you died, you passed into the realm of the dead. So you've heard people talk about a three-storied universe like the spirits and God in one, the heavens, the earth being the place of the living, and the concept of Sheol or just the, 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 the abode of the dead would be the place you pass into. The interesting thing is your life continued, but there's not a uniformity of thought. Some thought you were asleep, some of the traditions believe that there was like varying levels depending on what you were doing, but everybody was in the same place, just there was varying levels. Um, some people believe that you continue to experience almost a walking deadness, like your body was decaying, but somehow you had some form of it, like some people would say even a skeleton of it. No real uniform thought as to what happened. Um, I mean, people try to say, oh, this is just the view of the Old Testament, and that's, it's just too more complicated than that. So would you say maybe that, like, the faith that they had, like, the Jewish faith, for them wasn't about, like, because I want to go to heaven and I want to be, quote-unquote, saved. It was more like a way of life to honor God from, like, fear of who he was and his righteousness as opposed to, I need to do this so that when I die, I don't go here or I can go there. 
Yes, it was mostly, I would say, almost entirely about the here and now, about this life that God has given. And so last week, I think it was Jeremy who pointed out when I said something like, you know, if you believed in a universalist view, then what would be the point of believing in Christ? Like, why even believe in him? And he made a very astute observation, which is that, so the only reason we believe in Jesus is to go to heaven? Like, imagine if you just found out that everyone's going to heaven. And that it doesn't matter. Would you still believe in God? Would you still serve God? Would you still obey God? Would you still put God as your master and your Lord in the center of your life? Or would you think, hey, the only reason I was doing this just got, you know, X'd. So what's the point? And that's a very interesting question to see either why there was so much of this back and forth between obedience and non-obedience in the Old Testament. Or maybe you look at it from a completely positive light and say, these people didn't have a belief in eternal rewards and punishments. They just looked at God as you are worthy and my life should be in your presence, right? That's, that would be beautiful. All right, so done with the Old Testament. Let's get to Jesus. I'm going to read the number of places that Jesus talked about hell and I'll tell you the ending before we even start. It's Jesus who talked the most about hell, if not exclusively, close to exclusively. Right? He is by far and away the one who speaks the most about hell, which creates a problem for those of us who believe in Jesus. Matthew 5.22, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So, he seems to think there is a hell, I would say. You can disagree with that. I also Oh right, there's one. Thank you. <laughs> so Jesus pronounces hell and describes it as the fire of hell. Pushback? Yes. I think when we were going through this in the series of Matthew, like we kind of took this verse as a little bit of hyperbole. So it seems weird that we're now looking at it and saying, like, aha, there's proof. It's very good. That's exactly the objection to this verse, is that we have to analyze the genre with which he is speaking. Let me put up the next one because we're going to talk about them together. The next one in Matthew 5, 29 and 30, also in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than then for your whole body to go into hell. So, let's talk about Ben's point. Yes, it's clear that Jesus is using hyperbole. Virtually all scholars agree that that's what he's doing. That he's probably not instructing his followers to literally gouge out their eye or cut off their hand. But the question that we have to answer, and I'm just going to leave it out there, you have to answer it is, the fact that he's exaggerating what you would rather do than go to hell, does that mean he's also exaggerating hell itself? The other question about the fire of hell that you have to ask yourself is, is he describing that there's going to literally be fire in hell? Or is he just trying to make the point so strong using the strongest imagery that you could think of? Because there's already probably some sort of idea developing somewhere in the culture that this place might have fire so he's going to use the strongest words he can, just like he's saying, gouge out your eye or cut off your hand. Right. I just, I'm a little bit confused historically. So Jesus was Jewish, so theoretically his ideas about how it developed from a Judaism perspective, but there's no scripture on it in the Old Testament. So when did that theology about how development, from where did it come? It would be what I reference is during the 400 year or so intertestamentary time, you see an increasing theology of hell developing. Right, so we're talking about like in extra biblical sources, they actually start to describe. So it is in non canonical literature. Yes. So if, and it's an if because we don't know what he's relying on, if he's relying on sources that are common to his tradition, then that's most likely what he'd be relying on because we know he has arguments that start to rely on this developing theology that's going on with the Pharisees, like even about the resurrection. Right? Like he's already alluding to the fact that there's debates about, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees about whether there is a bodily resurrection or not, and he's actually beginning to engage in that. So clearly around his time, people are discussing the issues. But I think you have to also consider maybe he's not relying on any tradition. 
I mean, if you want to make Jesus just a man who's limited to what he knows in his culture, then that argument takes on greater weight than the one you just made. If you think that Jesus is different in some way and speaks with authority that others couldn't have whether they had scriptures or not, then we have a totally different issue going on here. Jeremy. Uh, and just to add that there's a, a lot of research that um, shows a, a really good connection between the Jewish, um, the Jewish people being influenced by the Persian faith of Zoroastrianism and that there was, a, there was an interaction of culture around the same time John's talking about this inter-testament period. So it also poses a very legitimate question about you know, the impact of another society's culture because that's where you see a development of things like heaven and hell and you also see a change in the Jewish perspective of a more cyclical view of life to a more linear view, like a beginning and an end and those kinds of things. So all that to say, there's a lot of, there's a lot of interesting research about the kind of cultural environment of that whole area, especially with Persia and Cyrus the Great and all, all those things. So. You know, if you ask somebody this question point blank, like if you ask a believer the traditional view, you know, if this is such a big doctrine or this is such a big important thing, why is it not mentioned in the Old Testament at all? Like, don't you think it's strange that God revealed himself to the Israelites for so long and never mentioned this or this never came out? That's a very good question. And I'm not sure that there's a very good answer. But the answer that keeps coming up over and over, not just in this area, but there seems to be a gradual development of God's revelation that goes on throughout time. And so the argument has been that in the Old Testament it is almost not discussed, even though if we went through all of those verses about Sheol and the pit, you'd see hints of it. All right, That's what they would say. By the time you get to the intertestamentary time, that revelation is gradually increasing in the tradition to the point where they are starting to talk about things like the resurrection of the body and judgment and even the development of these ideas. Is it because they're influenced by people around them? Is it because God is revealing more of himself to his people? And then they would say that crescendos, of course, and comes to a huge point by the time Jesus expands on it, right? So it isn't like one day it's not there, and then suddenly he just comes in and announces it for the first time, and people are like, what? Wait, 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 wait. Like, say that again? Like, we've never heard that. But I think we have to evaluate that with a lot of scrutiny. All right, how about this one? Matthew 18, 8 and 9. Also, one of these same passages, I put them together. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. Ding! <laughs> and if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. By the way, you only get one point if they're in the same verse pairing. All right, so maybe your count is higher than mine, but we're only on two so far. If they're tied together into a verse pairing, then you only get one point. Yes. John, I'm curious to know, um, you know, a lot of different words are translated um, hell, and some of them, you know, if we didn't translate them that way, if we knew their context, I think it would be even more clear that it's not talking about a place of torment, like, for example, the word for the the garbage heap that was constantly burning outside the town is often used as a, a, a translation for hell. But Jesus may have been making a reference to like a very physical fire thing that would, you know, have a have a different kind of meaning. So I wonder if you know if you can tell us, you know, what words here are being translated. Because that might again change understanding. If I click the button and that happened right now, would that be the coolest thing you'd ever seen? Okay, but I didn't do it. Um, <laughs> uh, I am going to be doing it next week, and there is a reason for that, because what you are onto is something that I really believe is the right thing to do. We have to actually look at what word hell is in many of these contexts, okay? And it's going to be part of our response to the traditional view, is to look at, see those. Now, the thing that Jeremy was just highlighting or, or alluding to is something we should look at. In most of these cases, the word for hell is Gehenna. And when it's capitalized, it's referring to a historic site outside of Jerusalem that was a trash heap, 
All right. So sometimes this reference to where the worms don't die and where the fire never goes out, it was believed to be that's because Gehenna was the actual place where they burned the trash and where they dumped bodies that didn't deserve burial. Criminals, soldiers that were enemies, they would just dump their bodies there and the maggots would continue to feast on this great buffet of decaying corpses. And the trash heap was burned, okay? That's the reference you're making. However, the interesting thing is there is a word that Jesus used as well, which some people think like the root word might come from this, and it's Gehenna, not Gehenna. And it actually, people believe, yes, its root comes from the fact that that was the illusion that people used to. So that becomes an important thing of, is he using that word? Does it matter? I mean, again, is he making an allusion to something people know? Or is he just using a root word that's very similar to the physical place, but actually had developed to mean a burning place of afterlife judgment? We have to look at that. We'll come to that in the traditional view. I just want you to know what he was referring to, right? Well, I'm, correct me if I'm remembering wrong, but I seem to remember in um, the book of Luke, in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus refers to Hades, which is Hellenistic and seems to be something different than this idea of Gehenna that just introduces almost like another idea of an afterlife. Right. That is absolutely right, that Hades is another, like Hades would be the equivalent, close equivalent. They're not perfect equivalents of Sheol, like a place of the dead. Now, in the parable in Luke, which we're going to get to in a moment, the reason he uses Hades may be significant because he's actually not talking about a final place. He's talking about a holding place. But even in his picture of Hades, there's a separation. I mean, one person is in the bosom of Abraham, one person is suffering, right? So we're going to get to that in just a second. Yes. Do you think it's weird that this Matthew verse at the bottom talks about entering life maimed or entering life with an eye gouged out? Doesn't it seem like it would be something that happens while you're already in life? He's talking about entering the next life, right? I mean, he's literally talking about like it's better to go in that way. But then doesn't that contradict our views that when you get to heaven, you're made perfect? You mean bodily, right? Like if you don't have an arm, like you'd have an arm in heaven? Yeah, I, I think that's a fair, uh, that's a fair point. And I, that's why that if you look at this, you're saying he must be talking and using hyperbole, right? Because that isn't even the total New Testament theology of bodily resurrection. Not even just New Testament theology. It just isn't the idea that they had of bodily resurrection. But, and his point is clearly like it's better to go through this life with one eye and to enter life, even if you entered it that way, than to burn in hell and have both eyes the whole time or both hands, right? So again, his point is more to teach, but it does leave this lingering question of like, well, why use that example? Is it just an example? Are you just trying to show the gravity or do you really think as Christ, the God-man, that there is a hell and does it include eternal fire? Let's move on. Matthew 10, 28. Jesus says, do not be afraid. He's instructing the disciples, by the way, before they go out into the towns. And they're a little worried about the reception they're going to get from the people they preach to. He says, in Matthew 10, 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. So if you're asking the question like, does Jesus believe in the hell? And this isn't a parable, and I don't know that this is hyperbole. This would be classified as a warning passage to his disciples. Yes? But what does destroy mean? Because that's not like everlasting torment. It doesn't seem. seems like a... That's what I want you to be looking for. So if this verse supports the idea of hell, your objection is it seems to support... Maybe like annihilation or something, or like a, a punishment at first and then you're done. I don't know. Good. Yeah, I think it, it looks more like you go to hell and you, and you could get annihilated, maybe not when you get there. Like there's something else when you get there. Good. That's what I want us to be thinking about. Matthew twenty three fifteen. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Child of hell is not a reference to Chucky, by the way. <laughs> 
In the Semitic expression, a son of hell or a child of hell means that you are associated so closely with that, with that thing that you've become the same nature and the same thing, almost as if you're born of it. So a son of hell, or and many translations will say, as much of a son of hell as you are, basically destined to be in hell. Like you are so much going there that you might as well be the thing itself. You're familiarly associated with it. He goes on in another woe, says, You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? I don't want to answer the question for you, but it seems to me that Jesus believes there's a hell. Just, I think that if we're going to answer that question, does Jesus believe there's a hell? I mean, again, he could be trying to make a strong, strong point, but why not use death? Luke 12, 5. But I will show you whom to fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. It's not a parable. It's just a warning passage that Jesus is giving to people who are listening. Fear God. He has the power to throw you into hell. That's whom you should fear. And then the one that Ray mentioned earlier, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which we won't go into because it's very long. But if you look up Luke 16 and that one, Lazarus is the beggar at the gate, rich man, both of them die in the next life. They seem to have a reversal of fortune. Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham, a place of comfort. The rich man is in torment. He's in a hot place. He's asking for someone to just come and just soothe his tongue. And there's a whole discussion that ensues as Jesus is commenting on the parable but again, since they're in that place, I have to give it a point. So there's number three. You have to give that one a hot point. All right? Mark 9. This is a repetition, verses 43 to 49, of another of the warning passages about cutting off your hand and doing those things. But again, in this one, he expands a little bit in the Markan passage on hell and fire. He says that it's better uh, to enter life maimed with two hands, uh, then with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. You want a point? But this is interesting because this is the place where Jesus cites Isaiah 66, that verse that we looked at from the Old Testament. Jesus incorporates that passage into his discussion on hell. Jesus expressly goes back to the worms that do not die, the fire that is not quenched. He's citing to Isaiah 66. So he seems to think that Isaiah was talking not just about the enemies of God in this life and some pit outside of Jerusalem, which people believe existed all the way back even to Isaiah's time, but he's actually making a direct reference, and maybe Isaiah was too, to an actual hell. Monique. What would be interesting to know, and I don't know if we do know that or someone's in research or whatever, is how closely Isaiah was tied to hell at that time to the Jewish people if it was something that was cited by them and, and had begun to sort of make that correlation or if Christ was the first one to sort of go back and make that correlation. Because if you do look at Jesus as just like a prophet, not from like a Christian perspective, like not God, a prophet, a man who's speaking, that's why I think people get really touchy about hell because it, I feel like it would have been revealed in the Old Testament. Because it sort of looks like if you take it as a whole that it's just the formation of a culture. Like, if you study culture, or like anthropology, where ideas, like how Jeremy was saying, like ideas can, you know, be infused into other cultures, and it just looks like the normal development of how thoughts change. Or you can say, no, God is fully human, and fully God, and he's Jesus, and he's the Christ, and so he's going back and maybe making connections, speaking from authority as God, to say, no, this is something to be taken seriously. So I'm curious to know if this was sort of his idea, or a popular idea already? It was less than popular, but it was already an idea. In truth, probably the majority of people would look at Isaiah's words and say, if you're looking at it from an entirely Jewish Old Testament perspective, you'd say, he's talking, he's making a prophecy about the enemies of God in the here and now. But as time went on, especially during that period I'm talking about between the Testaments, when they started developing further their theology, what I saw was that the attribution given was using that verse. There weren't many. It was developing and they were likely pointing back to that, if to anything. 
But I think the second part of what you said is true. Jesus does come and make connections that we don't have. If you want a non-hell example of that, on the road to Emmaus, you remember that it says that Jesus walked with them and along the way he opened their eyes to all the scriptures and the prophecies concerning himself. Right? So he does have that role. He does have the ability to come and say the same in the Sermon on the Mount. Like, I've not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. And none of these things are going to pass away, but you've heard it said, and now I say to you even further. Like, he has that authority when he speaks. And I think, especially on the road to Emmaus, he's actually saying, let me explain to you how all of the prophets point to me. You might not even see how this all works, but I'm going to open your eyes to do it. Now, we don't have the transcript of what he was saying. But it's very clear that the church was doing that in the first century and later, going back and saying, yes, we have to re-understand everything because he's the center of what this has all been about. And he himself seems to have been pointing to himself and saying it's right to do that. So I think he can do that. By the way, he says here in, the, in verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. Okay, So they're all part of that one paragraph of verses. Yes, Cormac. I want to point out that I think it's a fallacy to say that because um, God just communicates to us in using our language and referring to things that we understand that he necessarily buys into them or believes those on any universal or objective scale. Because, I mean, that's just the way God has to communicate with us in, in whatever culture we're in or using whatever language we use in a way that makes sense to us in order to communicate any of the points he's trying to make to us in a way that we'll, we'll understand them. So you're saying that because Jesus is using uh, fire or hell he may not really mean that, but he's using language that we would understand. Yeah, to communicate a point that, that's, I guess, if you want to look at the, the forest instead of the trees, we, like, he's trying to communicate a point that may not be necessarily 100% um, accurate when you look at every single tree or whatever details. Um, okay, that's a point that's repeatedly made, and I don't think that's an invalid point to raise. But we still have to keep thinking, like, why would he use that example? He could use something else. Right? So is there a reason? I'm not even answering it. I'm just saying, is there a reason that he would continually use this one? And are we unable to understand? Maybe he would dumb it down for us, but I don't know that he would just completely... I feel uncomfortable saying that he would completely just kind of make something up. Well, I mean, even like, if you look at just the history of um, Judaism and Christianity, like, it does evolve and like, our understanding of things do change. And God connects with us on our level. So. Jeremy? You know, another point to keep in mind, which we can possibly do in this series, um, is that, you know, there's another analysis that goes on um, when it comes to the relationship of the very verses in the text themselves. So, you know, there's always the question. It never goes away, um, no matter what one says about their view of the Bible is, um, that these Gospels in particular were put together after Jesus had died by other people. And so there is, even if we say like minimally occurs, there is like arranging that happens. Um, and I don't know, I mean, I, I don't know this text at all, if, you know, whether I would say something Jesus did say was something he didn't say. And, you know, the, the scribe says, let's put these two together because it makes sense. That does happen in the text, though. Um, and it would be really curious, though, to go through these and to have you know, an analysis, you know, not that we'd have to fall in one place or the other, but just to say, here's what you know, the liberal scholars say, here's what the conservative scholar says about, and, and then see what kind of consensus happens there, because th that would, I think, be a little bit um, eye-opening as well. Okay. I agree with Jeremy, but I think to have a balanced view, we also have to look at the culture and say that um, their major way of communicating information was orally, and um, they took that seriously. It wasn't something like, when they told stories, it wasn't like, oh, this is just a flippant story and these are the ideas I remember about it, kind of. It was like, no, they took the time to like memorize it and purposely like keep that intact and keep that um, pure. Well, the argument never goes away. Never. In any subject I'm reading, whenever we get to the Gospels, the argument never goes away. Well, we don't know if Jesus really said those things, right? That just never goes away. I'm staying away from scriptural arguments in this series so far because if you don't really look at the integrity of the text the way it is, we don't have a problem to begin with. We're not even dealing with hell. You're just like, whatever, I don't even know that it says what it says, so that's not a problem for me. That's why I'm not sliding into that in this series if I can. 
Well, that being said, one other thing that is an interesting observation that I've seen so far is that normally people who don't like the Gospels hate John the most. Like, well, the three Gospels seem to be going one way, and then John just invents a whole new theology. What's interesting in the study of hell is John says virtually nothing about hell. And so the people who are John haters, which are usually the more liberal wing of scholarly analysis, or at least John critics, really don't say anything at all this time in this case because it's actually the synoptics that give them the most problems. And also to be fair, the synoptics kind of look like they were sourced, you know, like, like it looks like Matthew and Luke were looking at Mark or some sort of common source. So just saying they're in all three doesn't totally answer it either. I think your idea about some sort of oral tradition helps. Jeremy. Yeah, I think I would just push back on that a little bit. I mean, clearly there was an oral tradition, um, and there's great con you know, interest into whether or not the Q source, the common source, was an oral tradition or a written tradition. Um, but I wouldn't say that at this point that oral tradition itself had the same kind of integrity that it, it did like with the Torah or with, with like the, early, the earlier part of the um, faith of ancient Israel. Okay. Well, I just mentioned John, so let me just show you this. The closest that the book of John comes is in John 5.29. It says, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. So that's clearly a teaching about resurrection. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those that have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. So there's a judgment, but it doesn't give us a duration. It doesn't say where you go. That's the closest, really. But again, scholars who love to defend the traditional view will piece together all sorts of things in John that make it sound like it wouldn't make sense not to believe in hell. That being said, the word is not really cited there. Okay? Here's a big, long passage from Paul on hell. That's what Paul has to say about hell. <laughs> about the same as the Old Testament. So the word hell, if you look up a concordance and just want to read through Paul's letters on hell, you'd end up with a big zero. Okay? However, if we change it slightly, Paul does spend a lot of time talking about destruction and death. Just think of a simple verse like, for the wages of sin is death. All right? Death to him meant something different it meant something more. We may have to go into a little bit more when we talk about the view of annihilationism because they pick up a lot on his destruction language. But I will say that the closest we come is in 2 Thessalonians, the first chapter, verses 5 through 10. It's a long verse about punishment. It's a long verse about the justice of God. And in the middle of that verse, it says, they will be punished with everlasting destruction. So that's a strange kind of juxtaposition of two words, everlasting destructions, and shut out from the presence of the Lord. So for those of you who are talking about the cold, dark, outside of the presence of the Lord uh, kind of hell, you might want to hang on to this verse. That's the closest that he comes to. Let me just go through a couple, and then we'll kind of close it off for tonight. Hell elsewhere in the New Testament, other places that we find it. In James, he says, The tongue is a fire, a world of evil coming in parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and itself set on fire by hell. So, there's another point. 2 Peter 9 and 10. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Not surprisingly, you're going to find a few of these in Revelation. But actually, there's a main three. Isn't that interesting, though, that John wrote Revelations? But he doesn't talk about it in his gospel, but he talks about it in Revelation. In a vision, right. Supposedly after the gospel is completed, right? Yes. Yes, that is interesting. So here in Revelation 14, 9 through 12, we have this kind of vision of the coming, the end. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. 
they will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name, fire. I actually thought about bringing in the little Beavis and Butthead thing where they go, fire, 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 and then I thought, <laughs> that has no place among God's people. But it still would have been funny. Yes? Um, I just want to say that to me, it seems like fire doesn't necessarily always associated with torment and hell. For example, in another vision about being in the presence of God, there's the burning coal that cleanses the lips. There's this idea of redeeming fire, cleansing fire. It doesn't seem like it's always... Like, I wonder if we took a look also at verses that talk about fire in a positive light as opposed to punishment. I wonder if we would find that it's just more of a symbol of intensity as one of punishment. Yes, and the spirit himself is often referred to as the fire. Like the whole idea of baptism by fire. Like none of us actually think that when the Spirit comes upon us, we're like set ablaze, right? So there is that imagery, and you are right. And I did do a word search on fire, uh, and saw the other passages and made sure, first of all, at least in our study here, to take those out to make sure we're not confusing the fact that the New Testament talks about fire in ways that it's not talking about hell and fire. But yes, that's actually... A, a, a counterbalancing point of the imagery. But before we even get to that, some of you should say like, well, I don't even know what revelation means anyway. Why would I take this part to be literal? And then all those other like four-headed monsters or whatever to be, oh, that's just a, a kingdom somewhere, you know? Like, why is that going to be? So that's a, a that's objection that some of you should be making. And like the full context of this passage is the wrath of God. Are we sure that it's talking about after death or perhaps like while they're still living and worshiping the beast or taking the mark of the beast or whatever. Yes, well, the forever and ever should give us a clue, I would think. <laughs> uh, there's a special emphasis on the no rest day and night, forever and ever, the smoke of their torment, like it probably might begin earlier. Yes, Ben? At least here, if this is talking about the same type of eternal hell, this one makes a point that it's in the presence of holy angels and the Lamb as opposed to being separate from them. Yeah, and actually way more than I want to go into, but these lines, tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of holy angels, the smoke of their torment rises. There's actually whole like articles written about explaining those images. Those images were not just something that, like, John was probably incorporating something, using specific words to explain what he was seeing. That those words actually had some weight and some usage outside of just, like, looking at Revelation saying, Oh, what does that mean? Like he's actually using words that might have been common for people to understand. But it does take away what you said, like, at least in this verse, doesn't seem to be like some abandonment far away. Give you a few more. Revelation 20.10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You might point out your objection is, well, that's talking about the devil and the false prophet, and the beast, but doesn't talk about people. True. Might just help you establish that there is such a place. Another Revelation passage, 2014, and this one really refers, uh, in response to what Monique, you're asking about, this is the white throne judgment scene, which is really like the judgment at the very, very end, which talks about, I saw the great white throne, and I mean, this is actually a beautiful thing. I shouldn't just skim it. I should actually read it because it's it's beautiful imagery and it talks about God's holiness. We shouldn't just kind of skim that. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up their dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So that answers the question about, well, the first one seems like it's about the devil, the beast, and the false prophet, but closely on its heels, four verses later, all those people not in the book of life. So there's a point there. And... I think I'll end with just one more and then stop for tonight. Hebrews 10, 26 to 27 gives this warning, which has been the subject of a lot of writing. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, 
no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Thing, we're up to nine. In this one, you could say consume. Like, what does that mean? A lot of people focus on that word. Like, that doesn't maybe say that they'll be eternally tormented. That's the question that's left over by annihilationists that we'll come back to. So, how do you feel? If we go back to those questions that we started with. I mean, just check yourself right now as we're kind of somewhat through it. Do you think that there's evidence from the scriptures so far, just from what you've read, that there is a hell? Maybe a better way to describe it, as I said earlier, is do you think that Jesus seemed to think there was? Was he teaching about one? I think it's an important question, because if you don't think that, then the rest of the questions are really moot. And how is hell described? Hot, cold, dark, distant? Who goes there? And what about its duration? Is it eternal? Is it conscious eternal torment? We'll pick up next week and continue with some verses, but it does say something about what you believe about what we know about Jesus. Now, people look at this issue say, you know, if you want to look at Jesus and say, I don't really believe he was teaching that, it does open the door to say, well, but how do we know what he was teaching about anything then? But the most important reason I wanted to do this series is because there are people that you know, including sitting in this room, who don't buy this. We have to just maybe together wrestle with, does it matter? Can we just shove this doctrine under the rug? Can we just say there's just some things in the Bible that no matter what, I just don't believe them. And if they're in there, then I don't believe they're in there. And if somebody convinces me they're in there, then they shouldn't have been. I read to you last week one of those testimonies from people who had left Christianity over this issue. And I had said, I, I bemoan the fact that none of us had been able to speak to them. But here's the reason that we're doing this series. Could you have talked to them? What would you have said? What would you have said? If they came to you and they said, you know what? This, this, I can't believe in a God who would even let a place like hell exist. And for my simple, temporal, finite sins, or my inability to find him, condemn me to like some sort of eternal torment in this place. I just can't believe that. What would you have said? That's the reason we're doing this series. I want you to have an answer for the hope that you believe. And if your answer is Jeremy's answer, it doesn't exist. Don't worry about it. You're totally fine. <laughs> if that's your answer, that's at least an answer. That's at least an answer. And at least one thing I respect about Jeremy as much as we disagree about that answer is that he has an answer. Many of us who would look at this and go, why are we doing this? It's because I want you to have an answer. Because I would tell you the vast number of people who have trouble with Christ have trouble with this answer. And maybe by the end of the series, you'll be able to help them with at least your answer. Let's pray. Lord, be patient with us. And let us be patient with one another. And let us even be patient with this series. Let us sit before you in a spirit of openness, Lord, and allow you to trouble us allow you to let us deliberate and wrestle with one another. And in that moment when we're tempted to say, I don't want to do this, I don't want to think about this, it'd just be easier to do something else, will you surprise us, Lord? And let our patience pay off that somehow, just as you spoke, and you gave us your word to say these very things, that you would want us to study them and to wrestle with them and to understand the great wisdom that, yes, even though we'll never comprehend you, Lord, your revelation to us is for a reason. And it is not to ignore it. It is not to look past it. It is not just to busy ourselves so we don't have to think about it. Lord, let this produce wisdom. And let this produce truth. Pray this in your name. Amen.